Okay, we're in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, actually, to start with. Don't worry, it's only one verse. And then we're going into chapter 10. Don't worry, Mark, it's all right, I'll read it. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Those who sealed it were Nehemiah, the governor, and then a list of names of those who were the priests. The Levites... And a list of names of those who were the Levites. And then the leaders of the people, verse 14. And then a list of names of those who were the leaders of the people. I've got nothing against any of these people, by the way. Um, One day, when I get to heaven, uh, and I've got a little bungalow, and they've got a mansion next to me, I'll probably have to apologise that I didn't read their names out. Uh, But I'm sure they're wonderful people, but I thought, for the sake of 27 verses, no one would be offended if I didn't give it a go and didn't read them all out. And it'll save you listening to my voice for about half a minute. Verse 28. The rest of the people, priests, Levites gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, all these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord, our Lord. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, at the new moon feasts and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree, as it is also written in the law. We will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priest ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees, and of our new wine and olive oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites. 
For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes. And the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine and olive oil to the storerooms, where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers and the musicians are also kept. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is the word of the Lord. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt. I'm part of the Leaders' Council and uh, PCC here at St. John's. And uh, obviously I also preach occasionally in the church as well. So uh, I don't know most of you know me, but I thought I'd just say that at the start. Let's just pray quickly before we start to look into this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness, your love, your grace to us. Help us as we unpack what is in this passage tonight to apply it to our lives here in 21st century Britain with all the things that are going on around us. That your word may be relevant in our day-to-day walk with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In view of all this... That's why it was quite important that I started before chapter 10, verse 1, in the last verse of the previous chapter, because that's how this starts. In view of all this, the question then is, in view of all what? Now, if you've been with us over the last, I don't know how many weeks it is now, a couple of months, we've been working through the book of Nehemiah. We're in chapter 10 today, majority of it. So I'm going to give us a quick three or four minute summary of those first few chapters. Because what we have today comes in the context of the all this that has gone before. So very quickly, right at the start, Nehemiah is sitting in a place called Susa, which is probably in modern day Iran, when he hears about Jerusalem, his city. Thousands of miles away, I don't know how long it is from Iran to, to, uh, to Israel, but a long way. A long, long way away, he gets the news that the walls of Jerusalem are in disrepair. In fact, we're told he weeps and he cries out to God in prayer because it's his city. A bit, a bit perhaps like if we were to hear that the walls of London were destroyed. It might move us if we were on the other side of the world. He goes to the king having been moved in prayer, and he says to the king in that area, I want to go back. This is obviously a synopsis. I want to go back to Jerusalem and repair these walls. And so he travels back and he scouts round and he sees the terrible state that they are in. But he galvanizes the people, the people that are still around. These were people in exile. In other words, the people who had been moved out of Israel and moved out of Jerusalem because they turned against God. But there were still some of them around in that area starting to come back. So he galvanizes them. He said, come, we can do this. We can do this together. And almost miraculously, it's not a miracle, but it's not far off it, he manages, with their help, to restore the walls in 52 days. Now, that's some going it. Despite a lot of opposition from those around, a lot of criticism, a lot of mickey-taking, a lot of aggression from those around, they do it. 
They restore the walls. They built it again. And then in the process of this, they rediscover the law, particularly the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And as we heard a few weeks ago, they had a big reading of it for hours where they, they found the law of God again. They read it out, not just those strange Levitical laws that we kind of don't quite understand today, although they were there, but also that wonderful story of the stories of Moses and Jacob and Joseph and how God had been faithful and brought his people out of captivity in the past and out of Egypt into a promised land. And they stood there and they marveled at this and they celebrated and they feasted. If you were here, we had celebrations at the back for people to take on the way out. By the time I got to the back, they were all gone. Who had more than one? No, I'm not going to ask. They celebrated more than just eating chocolate. Chocolate. They rediscovered one of the, the feasts of those days, the, the Feast of Booze, which is where they would live in these little booze. And it was an exciting time, but at the same time, they were moved by this incredible God who had been so gracious and kind and loving to them. But as we heard last week, I think it was last week, they got before God and confessed their sins. We turned against you. You remained faithful to us. You stirred the heart of a man many, many miles away to come back and to galvanize us and to stir up our hearts. You showed us all the wonderful things that you'd done in the past to our people. And so they confessed their sins and asked for forgiveness before God. And then, in view of all this, they make this agreement. It's really important that we get the context of it. This is not just an agreement or a covenant, as it says in some, in, in some circles, that they just thought, well, I know, we'll just make a new agreement with God and just move on. This was stirred in their hearts. We might say today, they were moved by the Holy Spirit in response to the wonderful things that God had done And so we're going to go afresh, God. And in all of the things that they looked at, and all of the things, and there's there's pages and pages here if we wanted to read those first five books, as well as the committing themselves generally, as it says here in an agreement, there were three particular things that they pulled out. And so I want to pull those three things out in their context and look at them then in our context. And let's be honest, it's a different context This is five centuries BC. We are 21st century AD. Life has changed. They hadn't heard of the coronavirus in those days. They had other issues, of course, that they were dealing with. So we've got to take these principles and say, right, that was stated then. How does that apply to us today, all those years on? It's all a response to his kindness, his grace, his mercy, his faithfulness, his forgiveness. And that's where I want us to go today, is that we respond out of grace to whatever we hear in the next 20 minutes or so. It's not about responding out of guilt and feeling guilty. These people, I don't think, were feeling guilty. They were overwhelmed by the kindness of God. And this is how they responded. And I noticed that, and I know it looks like a three-point sermon, and it is a three-point sermon, because there are three points here. They respond with a promise, they respond with a commitment, and they respond with responsibility. So, the promise. In verse 30, 
We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. In all of the things that were going on, this is what was stirred up in their hearts. We're going to make this promise going forward. Not to give our daughters to those around us and not to take for our sons. Well, why do they do that? I'm going to go back to the the slightly larger print Bible up here and put my glasses on. If you turn over to Nehemiah 13, and I don't want to steal someone else's thunder, but we get a little bit of a, a summary later on. If you look at verse 26, you see, even after they make this agreement, it still goes wrong a little while later. But it always does, doesn't it? It doesn't matter how many times we go back to God and ask for forgiveness. I don't know about you, I still get it wrong. I still have to keep coming back to his grace and his kindness and his mercy. Well, here they are, a few, however long afterwards. Verse 26. Was it not because of marriages like these that I've just read out there that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Solomon, who was incredibly wise, was still led into sin, it says, by foreign women. Let me make this point. It's an important one. This is not a race point, particularly for us, but it is a religious point. It's not a race point. Israel was always welcoming people from other races into their community. But it was a religious point. You see, what had happened for them? As they'd taken their eyes off of God, as they'd forgotten the Ten Commandments, have no other God before me or even alongside me, so they'd seen around them, gradually forgetting this, that there were other nations and other religions. And gradually they'd married into those. Now, some of those, and you can look it into it yourself if you want to get into it, some of those were pretty horrible things that were going on. There was child sacrifice that was part of those religions. There was cultic prostitution involved in some of those religions. And they'd married into those, and so those parts of those religions had melded in with what was going on with the people of Israel. You can see why it was no longer... God above all gods, well, we've invited in other gods into our family home. And as they stood there, having been moved by God's grace, they knew that that was where they were going wrong. We make a commitment, we're not going to do this again. So let's come on two and a half thousand years to us now in 21st century Britain. Matthew 28 says that we are to go and make disciples of all nations, to get out of the church and to go and be out there and mingling and involved in the world. One of the things that I, I love, I often say this to Neil, one of the things I love about the way that Neil leads is he always talks about on our front lines with stuff, where we spend most of our time. We don't spend most of our time here in church. Some of us do. I don't know what he does. But most of us aren't in here all the time, are we? We're in school playgrounds, picking up kids or dropping off kids, or we're at work or we're with neighbours. We're, we're out there. And Neil's been very, always very good at reminding us that that's where God has called us into. We're called into a world all around us. 
As some of you know, I'm involved, uh, heavily involved in sports chaplaincy, particularly in football. Some of that is uh, alongside other Christians. Some of it is encouraging chaplains. But most of my time, I'm in and out of football clubs. I'm in and out of changing rooms and uh, physio rooms. And I'm surrounded by some fairly rich language and some fairly risque stories around there. It's easy when we're in that environment to become infected or affected by the world. Yes, we're called to go into the world, but if we're not careful, and it's very, I know it's very beguiling and it's subtle, but gradually, if we're not careful, we can look back and think, actually, am I any different? I've called my point this point here, the promise is for us not to marry the world. If that sounds a bit cheesy, I apologise. But it's that sense of becoming one with and just the same as the world. In a specifically, specifically marriage context, and it's something for us to reflect on, this is picked up a little bit in the New Testament. Paul picks up on it in 2 Corinthians verse 6. He, he uses this phrase about not getting yoked to unbelievers. Now, I remember when I was a teenager in the particular youth group, you know, we're all blokes and girls together and going out with one another and I just remember some of the teaching and every now and again someone would go out with someone outside the youth group who, you know, who wasn't yet a Christian. It was, oh, don't get yoked to unbelievers would come the challenge from the front and we'd all look at each other, oh no, don't get yoked to an unbeliever, thinking, what on earth does that mean? Don't, don't throw yoke at unbelievers? We were totally amused by it. But actually getting older, reflecting back, what it was actually saying is that you're a Christian and if you do start going out and end up getting married to someone who's not a Christian, there can be some challenges there. There can be different values there. Now, we've moved on in society. We don't give our daughters, there's still a nod to that, I know, in the, uh, in the marriage service. But our young people make their own decisions, don't they? You know, I did before the Lord. Helen did. She, well, she agreed with my decision, wasn't it, Helen? <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> but we prayed about it before the Lord. That's my point. But we made our own decisions. We weren't told by our parents what we must do. But I'm, I'm praying for my kids, my three boys, that they'll marry a Christian. Because that's what I want. I want them to grow up in the faith, to develop their faith, to have their children in the faith. Because I've seen so often, and again, I'm not in any way judging anybody, please don't take me like this, but I've seen so often where the challenges can come in marriages when there is that mixing together. There's grace for all of us, please don't misunderstand me. But I'm just getting us to think in of some of the challenges in here, that's all. So there's a marriage one, but there's the more general. Am I married to the world? For us to reflect upon. This is what spoke to the people in Nehemiah two and a half thousand years ago. So, firstly, there's a promise. Secondly, there's a commitment. And it's a commitment to keep the Sabbath holy. Verse 31. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego work in the land and will cancel all debts. 
an interesting correlation here between these two points and these two verses. In verse 30, is we won't allow our sons and daughters to marry in the neighboring people. And here it is, we won't continue to, to sell our merchandise and continue to be involved in transactions, money transactions, on the Sabbath. Again, let's think what might have been going on here. The people who've rejected God gradually. Well, you know, everyone around us, they're all selling stuff on the Sabbath. You know, we live in a 24-7 society here in, in, in Israel, two and a half thousand years ago. And, you know, if we don't sell on the Sabbath, well, that's, you do the maths better than me, but that's 15% less because it's one day less. We've got to keep up with them around because, you know, they're making all the money all the time. So oh, it doesn't matter, does it? We'll start trading then on that day as well. And then we can make as much money as them. But you see what had started to happen is they began to it had become like any other day. They were marrying whoever they wanted to. They were bringing in all the other kind of practices and the other religious practices in the home. And now, well, we'll just carry on on Saturday as it was for them. We'll keep on just in our transactions and that. And everything is now the same. And who, who are the Jews? Who are the people of Israel? We can't really tell anymore because they're so mixed in. You know, we're all sort of the same now. It's all wonderful. But in the process, they turned away from God. You see, God had said right back, going back to creation, you know what, you, you need a day of rest. You need a day to stop and worship me and rest and spend family time. Don't just carry on with everything else. You need to stop. So here we are in 21st century Britain. Anybody, anybody remember what year the Sunday trading laws came in? Who said 95? It was 94. If you were in church in those days, you might remember all the discussions going on, the different groups before that. You know, people, places were starting to open up, but it was breaking the law and this, that, and the other. And then the Sunday trading laws came in in 94. And now, it's, I think there's six hours a day that Sunday trading is allowed in like supermarkets and places like that, although they can open up half an hour before so you can browse before the, the, the tills actually open. It's all, it's all quite interesting. Um, and that's just in this country. It's different in other countries around the world. Some have uh, wider laws and some you know, still ban trading on a Sunday. That's fine, isn't it? Because we live in a 24-7 society. We've got to be able to trade on a Sunday and carry on doing it because everybody else is. Hold on a minute. That sounds a little bit familiar with Nehemiah two and a half thousand years earlier. Now, I don't want to be uh, told I'm a hypocrite here. Have I ever shopped on a Sunday? Yes. Bought a loaf of bread or pint of milk or gone to Sainsbury's? But yes. Or in a more modern context, gone on Amazon on a Sunday and ordered something? Yes. But there is still a challenge here, isn't there? We can't turn the clock right back. But there should be a challenge to us. If we're just treating Sunday, the Sabbath, or if that's our Sabbath, like any other day, what makes us any different to the world? We, we can just carry on. It doesn't matter. Marry who we want. Shot when we want. 
work when we want. And again, don't get me wrong, I know some of us need to work on Sundays. And I've worked on a Sunday this year uh, at the football club. That isn't what I'm saying, but I'm just trying to get us to think a little bit about this Sabbath principle that's in here. In fact, it even talks about the principle for the land. Every seven years, giving the land a rest. There's a lot to think about there in terms of how we treat the world today and the land today. I'm not going to get off on a climate thing, but there's something there, isn't there not, for us to think about that's in God's word? Bit of a confession now. 17 years ago, I had a sabbatical, interesting word. Sabbatical comes from this principle. Uh, I was leading a church, uh, full-time leading a church, and in some churches, some denominations, they give you what's called a sabbatical. Some is every seven years, some every ten years. When would you be due one, Eddie? You're overdue. Okay. Note to PCC and Leaders Council. And the concept there in the sabbatical is that, and, and I know some, um, I don't even like the term, but secular organisations do it as well. You had a sabbatical, didn't you, a few years ago? Um, they take on this thing that people need, a, need a, a longer break, not just a week's holiday or two weeks' holidays, particularly if you're giving out all the time. So anyway, I had a sabbatical, went away, and I was really challenged personally and convicted on this point. And I read something by a guy called Eugene Peterson, and I'm leading a church, and what he said in there, he said this, he said, the one commandment that ministers, vicars, pastors, whatever, break more than any of the other Ten Commandments is keeping the Sabbath holy. Wouldn't dream, hopefully, of murdering or committing adultery or stealing, but keeping the Sabbath holy, well, I'm very busy. I'm leading a church. You know, I've got a big flock. I need to be about it all the week. I can't take a Sabbath rest. I was really convicted on that. I came back home from that sabbatical and I said to the leader, I'm going to make sure I take my Sabbath. And I changed the name in my diary. I stopped putting day off and wrote in it Sabbath. Because it was a special day. Now let's be clear here, a Sabbath for me then, as a Sabbath for Eddie, is not Sunday. When you're up taking Holy Communion at 7.30 in the morning and then got a service at 9 something and 11 something and then at 6 something, that's not a Sabbath. Not if you're in full time. It's not for Chris either. I mean, you wouldn't get to see, I know I keep picking Eddie out, sorry mate, but I'm trying to make the point. You don't get to see your family very much on a day like that. You need to see your family. But the point is, for Eddie, as it was for me, you've got to have a Sabbath still. When is it? Is it Saturday? Is it Monday? When is the day when you stop, stop working, and actually spend different kind of quality time with God for your relationship with God and your family's relationship with God and go for a walk in the park and relax. I even got into trouble with one of my church members who rang me up on my Sabbath and I didn't take the call and I let it leave a message in the answer phone. And I spoke to him the next day at church. He said, I rang you yesterday. I said, I know, I know. He said, well, why didn't you come back to me? I said, it was my Sabbath. He said, I've never rung you before on your day off. He called it like that. And I went, no, you're right, you haven't. He said, well, I thought as a one-off, you would pick up the phone. Now, I was leading a church much smaller than this. It's about 100 people in the church. 
I don't know how gracious I was to him, but I said something like, with 100 people in the church, if everybody, once, once every two years, just thinks I can ring Matt on his day off, I don't get a day off in two years. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, well, I know that sounds very direct, but we've got to honour the Sabbath principle, not just for ourselves, but for others as well, haven't we? First of all, they had a promise not to marry the world. Secondly, a commitment to keep the Sabbath. And again, I'm going to say this again. This is their response to the kindness and grace of God. This isn't anybody saying, you must do this. And I don't want to come across like that. It's a response in grace to how loving God is and what he's done for them. That's why they decide we don't want to get this wrong again. The third one is a responsibility. It comes up in verse 32 and 35. We assume the responsibility to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. To bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood. Verse 35. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits, the firstborn. They weren't sacrificing the firstborn. That's not what that means. And to bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites. The Levites were those who were helping out with the priests. A promise, a commitment, and a responsibility. And I've called this a responsibility to give our best to God. Think of their context. They needed to have the upkeep, and it was put in Mosaic law as well, depending on how the uh, exchange rate worked out. It says a third of a shekel in some place and a half a shekel in others, if you want to look into that sort of stuff. But it's all to do with, apparently, Babylonian shekels and Israel shekels. But hey, I know there's, there's about to be someone here thinking, well, wasn't it half a shekel? Well, that's apparently why it is. But the point is, they gave that money so they could keep everything going within, within the house of God. The wood. Well, of course, they were always burning sacrifices, so you've got to bring wood in, haven't you? So we'll cast lots and we'll take it in turns and we'll take the wood in. So we've got to make sure we've got enough wood there. And then we get the first fruits and the tithes. The first fruits. It is what it sounds like. The first fruits. That's the best of the harvest. What, you mean, so when it starts harvesting, bringing the best of it at the start? Yeah, yeah, the, the first fruits. But what, what if the harvest isn't very good for the rest of it? Mm, I don't know. Just trust God, I suppose. But take the first fruits to him. Oh, that's a bit risky. He wants the first. And the tithes. The 10%, that's what tithe means. Um, you can't tithe less than 10%. It's the contradiction in terms. Tithe means 10%. They gave 10% of everything. Why? Closing the last verse. We've been neglecting the house of God. We've been intermarrying to anybody and we've got all these foreign gods that are in our house now and we're worshipping, we're not quite sure who. And actually we don't know when we worship anymore because we don't actually have a Sabbath day anymore and we just kind of just carry on throughout the whole week. And the house of God, well, we're not even really sure where it is anymore but no one's given any money to it and there's no wood for the burnt offerings and it's falling apart because nobody's paying anything. So, hey, wow. That's why they were in exile because they rejected their God. And that's why they responded, because although they had rejected him, he had rejected them. Isn't that wonderful? <sighs> We've been singing it about his mercy. His mercy is more. Every time we muck up, I had a conversation once with somebody, and they said, well, you can only give people so many chances, can't you? 
And then he looked at me and he went, you don't believe that, do you? And I went, I can't believe it. Because I worship a God who gives umpteen chances. Because I muck up every day and he still takes me back. Sorry, and he, he, went, he smiled, he went, no, I knew you couldn't say that. That's the kindness, the grace, the love of God. Which brings this all then to us. Our shekels. Our first fruits. Our tithes and offerings. People sometimes say to me, Matt, um, tithing is an Old Testament legal principle. Not everybody agrees with me, so you can take issue with this. I don't mind. I'm just saying where I'm at with it. We often ask for testimonies in the preaching, so this is mine. I think that, yes, tithing is in the law, but actually it predates the law. The first person, you go back to Genesis 14, as an act of grace... A response of the heart and love, Abraham gives a tenth of everything to the king of Salem. That's before there's any law written in. It comes from his heart because he's, been, he's received kindness and generosity. That's where it starts. Yes, it's then reiterated in the law. Yes, it's reiterated here. And yes, in the New Testament, in Matthew 23, Jesus has a conversation with the Pharisees around it as well. Talks about giving a tenth of their cumin deal, this, that, and the other. You shouldn't have neglected that. You should do this, but you shouldn't have neglected that either. So I do believe it's an attitude of our heart. Now actually, it's, it's more than 10% really, because everything I have is from God. It's not, well, I've given 10%, that's it, I don't care anymore. But I do feel it should, 10% is where we start with it. Again, I'm just being personal. When we got married 25 years ago this summer, almost about this time, I think we got engaged in the April, wasn't it, Helen? Yeah, it was in the April time. Helen was living in Basingstoke, working... I was living up here. I was studying at Spurgeon, so I didn't have an income at all. And we were getting married, and we were all excited about that. And we needed to get a house and a mortgage, and it needed to be in this area because I was leading the church. And when we looked at it, we looked at what, how much money we had. The first thing we did is we said, right, there's 10% of that. That goes to the church, the house of God, where we're in relationship, where we're being partially cared for, where we're committed now that now leaves us 90% to get a mortgage and to pay for your travel backwards and forwards. Helen's season ticket was more than a mortgage and the mortgage wasn't cheap, just to give you some indication. It seemed to work out though, somehow. And I haven't got time to show, tell you all the amazing stories from that where we literally had money dropping through the letterbox and starter motors that needed changing and didn't have the money and then nobody knowing about it and £60 coming through to pay for I mean, it was just incredible. But we went from the principle is that's where we start and we'll just go from there. That's on the specifics of, of money and we've taught that to our boys as well and we'll continue to. That's on the specifics of money but the bigger point and this is the first fruits and we're going to close in a minute from the preach anyway is it's about giving our best to God. The first fruits are, are the best. It's the best bit of the harvest. It's the best of the new wine and of the oil. Now, we don't live in an agricultural society, I know, now. But we want to give our best, don't we, to God? Why? Because he's given his best for us. As I reflected on this and I thought, this was what they were doing two and a half thousand years ago. I've got Jesus. 
I'm responding to what Jesus did on the cross. I'm responding to the fact that he died for me and he's given me eternal life and he's given me hope and a future. I'm responding to his resurrection, the resurrection life that lives inside of me. I'm responding to the fact that he's ascended and he sent his Holy Spirit who's at work in the world today and is guiding me. I'm responding to the fact that he's given me a fantastic wife and three lovely boys and a pretty good church to be part of as well. So much more grace and kindness than they even had then. I want to give my best to you, God. I don't want to give what's left at the end of the day and think, oh, well, I better give a bit to God now. And so I guess there's a challenge in there for all of us. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, just being here in church. That isn't my point, really isn't. We give our best to God out serving in the world as well. But there is something as well about if the house of God is feeling neglected that we need to give some of our best in here as well. I'll throw out an example. We're not great at social media in this church, are we? We've talked about it recently. We're starting to kind of publicise things, but lots of our stuff is printed material. But Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and all of that kind of stuff, and, and some of you are nodding, looking at that, something, what is he talking about? I understood the names in here more than what he's saying now. But it's the way to communicate today. If you've got a gift in that area, that's my point. If you're gifted in that at work or at home and that, and you can offer something, you know, I don't mind getting to grips with that. It's a, it's a gift. It's something of the best that you can give to us. Please do it. That's just one little example. There's so many other ones that you might be thinking, gosh, I think God's given me in this. Can I give this to the church? Can I give this to God to serve him? In view of God's mercy is what I called this. Our response is to his mercy. Our response is to his grace and his kindness. We're going to listen to a song now, I believe, aren't we? You've crossed your fingers, you're hoping it works. Let's listen to this as our response and allow God by his spirit. This was a response to his spirit. This wasn't told, this was a response to his spirit. Allow God by his spirit just to speak into our lives and let's respond out of grace to the mercy of God. And then Neil can pick it up from there.